The reading for this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill 
and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. May it be true that we do indeed hear the voice of Jesus from the pages of Mark's gospel this morning. Mark, John Mark, the gospel writer, might be rightly nicknamed or referred to as the king of concision. He is incredibly concise, wonderfully pointed, Specifically direct, I think we can accurately say that he does not overdo it with the details. He just states the main point and moves on telling the story. As we continue working through the Gospel of Mark week by week, we, we will at times need to use Matthew and Luke's Gospel But we're going to try really hard to stick with what Mark offers us and to benefit from Mark's style and Mark's approach as much as we benefit from his rich gospel content. Mark was actually the first of the four gospel writers to record his account of the gospel. When Matthew and Luke and as the other synoptics, and then John eventually recording as well, they're all coming at it from a different angle, writing with a different purpose, we might say, though all inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the Word of God itself. Mark's general approach, we might summarize, is this. His intent was more of revealing the works that Jesus was accomplishing rather than reviewing the words that Jesus was speaking. We don't have the long sections recorded of what Jesus said, but Mark gives us lots of what he saw Jesus doing. And what he records here in the text that we're looking at together this morning, the first 11 verses, specifically 2 through 11, having looked at verse 1 as an introduction last week, the baptism of the beloved 
Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the beloved. Initially, in verses 2 and 3, with John the Baptist preparing the pathway, point number one is preparing the pathway, then the preaching of penitence by John the Baptist in verses 4 through 8, in verses 9 through 11, the publicizing of the Father's pleasure, the booming voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So the preparing of the pathway, the preaching of penitence, and the publicizing of the Father's pleasure as we consider Christ's baptism. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came. An initial reading of this text makes it seem like John the Baptist, as well as Jesus, simply appear out of thin air, out in the wilderness, outside the city. But Mark doesn't begin exactly there. His assortment of Old Testament texts reveal that John the Baptist and Jesus both actually appear not out of thin air, but right off of God's divine blueprint. They were promised of old. Look with me at this prophetic introduction that is offered, as is written, verse 2, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This prophetic introduction includes Exodus 23.20, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you into the place where I've prepared. This is God speaking to Israel of old, though promising what would eventually come in Christ, in John the Baptist and in Christ. Or Malachi 3, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And in Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, you may notice that I'm quoting Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah but Mark only says, as is, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah's portion of the quotation is the defining statement, the defining element. And so when Mark writes, he attributes it all to Isaiah. But Mark, in drawing attention to the passages from Exodus, from Malachi, and from Isaiah, he is certifying with his quotations that the law and the minor prophets... And the major prophets, the law in Exodus, the minor prophets via Malachi, and the major prophets by means of Isaiah. They all confirm the story that he's telling. He's not just making something up. He's continuing to walk through a story that began, a long, that began long ago. It will be helpful for us to remember from time to time that the primary initial audience that Mark is writing to was Roman Gentiles. As a result, Mark only uses Old Testament quotes sparingly because the Old Testament doesn't carry the same authority with the Gentiles as with Jews. However, with that in mind, Mark doesn't avoid using the Old Testament or the Word of God completely. He doesn't hesitate even to begin his entire account with this. 
Literally, it is written. His account of the gospel is a carrying forth, a continuation, as I mentioned, of the promise that a Messiah would come and would save his people, would be the message and the messenger of salvation for God's people. It is written. That phrase, spiritually authoritative for the Jew, it is written, a legally binding phrase for the Gentile. No one gets to escape this. The word of God applies to every single one of us. All of the word of God applies to every single one of us. There's no squirming out from under it at all. Mark does not avoid using the truth of Scripture based on what his audience might think about it. He doesn't think, oh, I'm writing to Roman Gentiles. I better not quote the Jewish Scriptures. They're going to write it off. He He doesn't care about that. He cares about the word of God and his confidence is there, not the world's understanding of that word. This is helpful for us to remember because we can be reluctant to share the truth of God as we're talking with coworkers or classmates or neighbors, thinking, ah, they, you know, I don't want to bring the Bible into it. The Bible is the word of God. The gospel is the power of God. The truth about Jesus is the only thing that will accomplish change. Our argumentation or convincing or logical rationalizing things is going to be of no value apart from the truth of the Scriptures. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He is the preparer of the pathway for Jesus the Christ. And he was promised to be so long ago. So if John the Baptist is promised to be a forerunner of the Messiah, of Jesus, then Jesus is not an afterthought of God. He's not some alternative to a prior plan gone awry. The gospel of Jesus Christ is only understandable as the completion of what God began long ago in Israel's history. The person and work of Jesus Christ is not understandable apart from the Old Testament. We must avoid any attempt or tendency to dismiss or diminish the importance of the Old Testament. And we're reminded of that here from the outset as in the way that Mark begins. It's the gospel according to Mark, and he begins by quoting the promises of the Old Testament. We must avoid also any attempt to escape or ridicule the Jewish origins that serve as the context for the gospel of God. The gospel that was hinted at in the garden and progressively revealed through time that came to full full fruition in the person of our Lord. Three times in the quotation, the word way or path is used. He will prepare your way, make ready the way, make his paths, make his way straight. The gospel is a pathway of salvation planned and made possible by God himself. And John the Baptist was the messenger of preparation pointing out the pathway of salvation. Make ready the way of the Lord. And he did. He came doing that by means of preaching, the preaching of penitence. 
Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He appears in the wilderness time and again throughout the scriptures. The wilderness is that place of repentance for God's people. Time and again throughout the scriptures, the wilderness is the place where God delights to bring deliverance to his people. Initially in Sinai, following the Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness. What happened out there? The bitter waters became sweet. I'll put none of the diseases on you, God says, which I've put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. God took his people out into the wilderness, made the waters sweet, and healed them from the diseases that their enemies were facing. Then again, symbolically in Jeremiah, I remember concerning the devotion of your youth, You're following after me in the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord. Or in Hosea, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly, kindly to her from Hosea Hosea chapter 2. John the Baptist appears and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's making the the way straight. He's preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And it's interesting with Mark being the gospel writer who gives very little attention to detail, the details that he brings out for us in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. This is Instagram of yesteryear. Mark thought it was important that we would recognize what he's eating and what he's wearing. John the Baptist was not making a fashion statement. He dressed to match his person. This is who he was. The garb that he was wearing was as unusual in his day as it would be in ours. It might be more unusual in his day than in ours. That's why Mark comments on it here, because it is unusual. It's simple. It's not fancy. John the Baptist is a man who is self-controlled and he's protesting against the self-serving godlessness of his day. He is robed with the clothing of a prophet. Listen to 2 Kings 1.8. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. Speaking of Elijah. He dressed to match who he was. He was a prophet of God and he dressed like a prophet. Dressing like that would have been as recognizable as, say, a coonskin hat. Any person come to mind when you think of a coonskin hat? Davy Crockett? What about a stovepipe hat and a Shenandoah beard? Abe Lincoln? What John the Baptist is wearing is exactly like that. It draws attention. People knew this man is a prophet. The rustic garb and the exotic diet set him apart from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. He lived a life that was marked, John the Baptist lived a life that was marked by continual repentance and uncompromising devotion to God. He was a prophet. And he knew what his mission was. 
As a result, he was completely fearless in his preaching of the truth. Mark doesn't give us any examples of that. But Matthew and Luke don't hesitate to. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist feared no man. He was a man on a mission to prepare the way of the Lord. He would go on in Luke 3, Luke records, John the Baptist saying, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What should we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Here's this man who's a prophet of God, who's aware of the word of God, that no matter where people were coming from or what their issue in life was, he was pressing the truth of the reality of the gospel and what God expects into their life and onto them. Calling all Israel to be baptized. That's what he's doing. Verse 5, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. For John the Baptist to call all of Israel to be baptized is implying that all of Israel was defiled by their sin. The same is true for us. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That's every one of us. The call of God to repent of our sins and to trust Christ exclusively for forgiveness is for every one of us. For John the Baptist, his message was effective. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea went out to him. All the people of Jerusalem were going and being baptized. And his message was effective partly because he embodied that message that he was preaching. In a real sense, his life was the message that he preached. The message he preached dominated his life, and it gave power and effectiveness to the message that he was preaching. That message being a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as I mentioned, as he preached on sin and on judgment, along with the need for forgiveness, all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem were being baptized by him. Some estimate that as many as 300,000 people were baptized by John the Baptist. He was busy. But John the Baptist also had a second part to his sermon. He wasn't just preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The second part of his sermon, verse 7, and he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. After me is coming one who is mightier than I. The second part of his sermon is much more prominent. One is coming. He's mightier than I am. I'm not even fit, John says, to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. Uh, probably every one of us in here would be willing to remove the shoe or sandal of anyone else in here. But 
in that culture, removing sandals was reserved for the lowest of the low. It was the most menial task imaginable. So much so that only slaves, and not just that, only Gentile slaves would have untied sandals and washed feet in those days. And here's John the Baptist saying, I'm even lower than that compared to this man. There's no comparison between that one who is coming. When John says he's mightier than I, he doesn't mean he's just a little bit stronger than me. He's just a little bit more powerful. He has just a little bit more authority. He's just a little bit more pure and righteous. Not at all. He makes clear with the example that he gives that there is no comparison whatsoever. John the Baptist is the one who is pointing the way. He is an arrow of a sign saying it's all about him. There's one who's coming. John the Baptist speaks metaphorically of his humility and his subordination to the Messiah, John records it in this way, he, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Imagine that. John the Baptist recognizes he's not even worthy to do the most menial task of the lowest slave, and still his demeanor is, I must decrease. I must become even less because he is so great and he is so worthy. And he continues, verse 8, I baptized you with water, but he, this one who is coming, this Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there are two baptisms spoken of here in verse 8. John says, I baptize you with water. Water baptism is what happens right here, occasionally. But he, John says, this one who is mightier than I, this glorious one, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The water baptism, in water baptism, the water is merely external. John says there's a superior baptism to water baptism. There's something better. And water baptism actually is symbolic of the superior baptism. Water baptism is an external washing, while spirit baptism is an internal cleansing. When we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit permeates every part of us. We become saturated with God, in God. One of the best illustrations I heard, I have heard about this a few weeks ago, was like a cucumber in vinegar. Every aspect is affected. You put the cucumber in the vinegar and it sits and it's saturated and it's completely transformed. No one opens a jar of cucumbers. Right? If you do, you didn't wait long enough. You open a jar of pickles. Right? We ought to be being pickled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That sounds like, that sounds more weird when I say it than it did when I wrote it. Okay? Be being pickled, people. Since it's a lighthearted moment, I'll just continue for a second. The illustration of a cucumber in vinegar actually was given by a Presbyterian. 
<laughs> which is interesting. So I think the, the practical theology was, was better in that position, so in that particular area. So, okay. Here's the point. With spiritual baptism, every aspect of our being should be affected, right? With water baptism, the outside is washed, symbolizing what has happened. But John says, I baptize you with water. Not diminishing water baptism. There's an importance and it ha- to it, and it has a place. But, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's that, the greater baptism. That's our longing. Regeneration, conversion, being changed by God. That's what we desire. This is what John the Baptist is saying. This, the way that he is prepared. Preparing, the path that he is preparing. He's saying, this one who's coming, he's going to immerse you with the very presence of God in your life. What a gloriously rich promise. The overall message of John the Baptist, reduced to a single word, is repentance. Turn away from your sin. Change your life's direction. And he preached it to notorious sinners and religious sinners alike. And we ought to hear him preaching to us, turn from your sin and trust in this one who is coming. Repent and believe in the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was symbolic and provisional, kind of holding the place, pointing to a more permanent, more prominent more powerful reality to come. The Messiah's baptism would supersede John the Baptist's baptism. The substance is always greater than the shadow. The antitype always surpasses the type. So the pathway is prepared by John the Baptist. It's pointed out by the preaching of penitence. And then finally, point three. I say finally, but it's the longest of the three points. The publicizing of the Father's pleasure. Mark records the story of Jesus' baptism with just a few dozen words. Such Such a massive event in the life of Christ, in the story of Christianity. In the original language, 53 words. Only a few more than that in most English translations. And and in this portion, in these three verses, Mark records less of what Jesus is doing and more of what's happening to Jesus as he is baptized there in the Jordan by John. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Simple, pointed, Straightforward. Zero fanfare from Jesus. None. He is among the people that he came to save. He came as one of them, one of us. He's just, we might say, one of the crowd on the banks of the Jordan. He's among sinners. Look at verse 5 connected with verse 9. All the country of Judea 
was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He's among sinners. Not because he has any sins to confess, but in order to identify with them, with us ultimately. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this in the 53rd chapter. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the sinners on the banks of the Jordan and then again between the two criminals on the cross. He was numbered with transgressors of the law like me and like you, identifying with us. And he's there. In those days, Jesus came. That's what Mark tells us. I, I know that there was a question asked, and I know that Mark, that pardon that Matthew and, and Luke spend time dealing with it. But I have found it really helpful to see that Mark just says simply, in those days, while John was doing what John came to do, Jesus came to do what Jesus came to do, to identify with his people. He's just one of them. And the anonymity of Jesus that existed on the banks of the river dissipates completely when he comes up out of the water. Immediately, verse 10, coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. No longer is he just one of them. The sky is peeled back. The Holy Spirit falls down and the voice of God speaks forth. And we hear, that's where the echoes are of Isaiah 42 that we heard read earlier this morning. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. All those echoes of old that were promised are coming to fruition. They're happening in real time there at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. And it's not just this servant that the Father has chosen, that his soul delights in, that he's putting his spirit upon. But if you remember in Isaiah 42, this same servant, he's coming to bring forth justice. This servant is coming to mend bruised reeds. This servant is coming to tend smoldering wicks. This servant is coming to hold the hand of his people, to watch over his own, to cause the blind to see and to set the prisoners free. Being anonymous among earth's multitude mattered not. Christ was known by his heavenly Father. This is my Son. Is that not enough for us? Is identity in Jesus with God as our Father, is that enough for us? That we too might be anonymous among earth's multitudes. Let's look a little bit closer at the three things that happened as our Lord was baptized. He saw the heavens open. The spirit descended like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. The heavens opening. 
Now, when, when we hear open, think of opening a door, you know, un- unless there's an emergency, it's typically a nice calm, turn the handle and open the door. It's not actually the word that Mark uses here. It's, it's literally torn open, parting. There's a significant difference between opening something and tearing something, right? You may have, this may be best understood, think of a bag of chips, right? Sometimes they're just really nice. You can just open them up and it's nice that's opening. But there are other times it just doesn't happen that way, right? What is the difference between a bag that has been opened and a bag that has been torn? Closing it back, right? The heavens were torn open. What is open can easily be closed. What's ripped or torn cannot easily be mended or closed. When Jesus comes out of the water, all heaven breaks loose. Joshua before him, Elijah before him, and Elisha before him had all parted the Jordan River where Jesus is standing as a symbol of their might. But Jesus doesn't stand and part the river. Jesus is baptized in submission for all righteousness, for the sake of his people, for the sake of our sins, and something far greater than the Jordan has been parted as heaven rips open, signifying not merely our access to God, but his access to us. God has come among us in the person of this man. He has come whether we want him or not. He is here. The barrier is removed and God is in the midst of the earth. Isaiah prophesied of this, longed for it. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would demonstrate your mighty power, God, like the Dividing of the Red Sea. It's the exact same language when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. In the same way, the heavens were peeled back. Or like the splitting of the rock that Isaiah talked about in chapter 48, verse 21, they did not thirst when, he led, when God led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split. That's it. It's that word. That split in the rock and the water gushes forth. There's a split in the heavens and the spirit gushed forth. Or the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. And perhaps the most exact tearing is that of the temple veil that was torn in two from top to bottom when Christ breathed his last. The long-awaited arrival of the Messiah is inaugurated by the heavens parting and his earthly ministry culminates with the veil being torn. The heavens have been opened. The veil has been torn. And God is in the midst of his people. He saw the heavens opening. And the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Upon him, it's not near as intense as the original indicates. 
The point is made to draw attention to the union of the Son and the Spirit, indicating a complete filling. This is not a dove landing on the shoulder of Jesus. It is a complete filling, an adequate equipping for ministry. It is like a dove. So think of it, it's a dove-like descent, not a dove-like spirit. A dove was not seen. The spirit is not in the shape of a dove. It's a simile employed by Mark to emphasize that what is happening is an actual objective event. This is not some subjective inner experience that Jesus is having. The Holy Spirit doesn't swoop down like an eagle or a hawk, but comes quietly and gently like a dove. The heavens are ripped open. The Spirit of God comes down. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. God the Father voices his love for his Son and the pleasure and delight that he has in him. You are my servant, Isaiah 49, in whom I will show my glory. Or again, Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. Or Psalm 2, you are my son. God has not spoken words like these to any others. Abraham was a friend of God. Moses was a servant of God. Aaron was the chosen one of God. David was a man after God's own heart. Paul was an apostle, a messenger of God. But to Christ, to the Messiah, to the Lord, to Jesus alone, does he say, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. Note here, in in these few verses, in this event, inaugurating the beginning of Jesus' ministry, The triune God is on full display. When the sky is peeled back, the Spirit descends onto the Son, and the Father speaks of his love and his delight that he has in his Son. You are my beloved Son. Now, remember for a moment what Jesus is doing there among the people, identifying with us. When we hear on the pages of the scriptures say, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased, Christ is there as our representative. If you're in Christ, that's the Father's booming voice into your life. You're my son, you're my daughter. In you I am well pleased. Because of this one who identified with us as sinners. Why was Jesus baptized with a baptism of repentance being sinless? He was putting himself in the place of sinners. Placing himself among the guilty. Coming to earth. Going into the wilderness. Coming for baptism. He didn't do it for his own salvation. He did it for ours. He didn't do it for his, because of his own guilt. He did it because of ours. He didn't do it for his own forgiveness, but for us, for our forgiveness. Not because he feared the wrath to come, but to save us from the wrath that was coming. 
If you, friend this morning, have not been drenched with the Holy Spirit in regeneration, if you are not being pickled, then you simply do not belong to God. If you haven't been baptized by the Spirit, if you haven't repented of your sins, and if you are not trusting in Christ and His shed blood for your salvation from your sin and from the wrath of God, you are not a Christian. Listen, it doesn't matter if you've been immersed or dunked or dipped or sprinkled or poured or dry cleaned. You must be baptized with the Holy Spirit to be cleansed from your sin. It is the only way to God. The pathway that John the Baptist is making is for Jesus, who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. This one, this glorious one, the Son of God, who identifies with us in our weakness, has all the authority and power of God to save us, to forgive us, and to make us one with himself. We'll see as we continue working through this gospel that he has the authority to forgive sin in chapter 2, verse 5, or to accept sinners in verse 15 of chapter 2, or to call tax collectors into discipleship in verse 13 of chapter 2, or to heal the sick, as we notice in our reading from verse 40 of chapter 1, or cast out demons in verse 24 of chapter 1, or to recover the Sabbath, the true meaning of the Sabbath in chapter 2, verse 28. He goes on in chapter 7 to, estab- to challenge the religious establishment's oral traditions. Or in chapter 11, to challenge the religious establishment's understanding of the temple. By what authority does he do all these things? Well, actually, that question was asked him of him later in Mark. And he responds with a question. Jesus does. A question about his baptism. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me, Jesus says. And they were dumbfounded. They knew that they could not answer the question. The inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry, being baptized in the Jordan River, culminated at the cross. The beginning of our Christian walk is in the waters of baptism in order that we might day after day take up our cross and follow him. That's what we're going to sing in just a moment. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition God and heaven are still my own. There is no better condition on the planet than to be united with Jesus Christ, experiencing the knowledge and the comfort of sins forgiven. He has accomplished all that is necessary. May God give us grace to run to him and keep running after him, repenting and believing. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for the gospel, for the promise of sins forgiven, for the reality of salvation in Christ. 
the opportunity to be known by you, the privilege to live ever before you. God, we pray that you will help us, that you'll take your word, apply it to our souls, that we might be salt among the earth, lights shining in the darkness, ambassadors of that glorious one who sits at your right hand. We pray in his name. Amen.